Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you and see each one of you this morning as we gather together. Um, I invite you this morning to open up to Romans chapter 5. This morning we are going to be looking at the first 11, ro- first 11 verses in Romans chapter 5. And what we're really going to see here is really the magnificence of God's salvation and the hope of this eternal glory that we have in God. And really, this is going to, going to offer to us a great assurance in the salvation that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's really kind of difficult to just jump right in here to Romans 5 because Paul has laid out so much foundation before this that he's built up to this. So to borrow from the analogy that Pastor Hafler used is the book of Romans being like one of the tallest mountains in the world. Coming in at Romans 5 without dealing with the first four chapters is really like being dropped off at 10,000 feet in this mountain and exploring up. The problem is we've missed the 10,000 feet of foundation that actually hold this mountain up. So what I want to do really briefly is just kind of give us a real quick overview of the book of Romans and the doctrines that Paul has brought, built up to this point because everything that Paul says in chapter 5 is going to be based and built on the foundations of what he has talked about so far. So if we look back to chapter 1, we see that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who, in their unrighteousness, have actually suppressed God's truth. In other words, they have have seen this evidence of God's existence through what He has made in His creation that they are without excuse, and they've actually chosen to worship the creation as opposed to worshiping the Creator. Paul then puts the responsibility for their unbelief upon them. It's a man's problem, not God's problem. But from there, Paul begins to lay out this... uh, This doctrine of justification by faith, and he's going to spend the bulk of these four chapters, one through four, uh, really building up this case for this justification by faith alone. And there's no doubt that there was Jews in the church at Rome at the time that that Paul was penning this letter, and no doubt that some of this teaching was directed directly towards them to clarify some thinking. Because Paul clarifies in these chapters that, you know, the Jew is really not any better off than the Gentile, right? Because Romans... 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, everybody is a sinner. And the Jew is not any better off than the Gentile. Paul's going to continue his defense of this justification by actually uh, providing proof that Abraham himself was justified by faith. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, that, that counted... That he was counted as righteous before the law came in. And that happened before the sign of cir- circumcision came in as well. So Paul's going to say justification was by faith for Abraham, as it always has been, as it is for us as well. And it couldn't have come by any works of the law or by even adhering to something like circumcision. In this first section, Paul has really, really laid out this defense for justification by faith by explaining two things. Number one, that people have sinned against God, and we really have absolutely no way of making that right on our own. And number two, that by the sacrifice of Jesus, that God is actually able to save sinners without violating his own justice. And that is good news for us as believers. So really, the main point of Paul's teaching in these first four chapters really can be summed up in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. So with these first four chapters really proving the case for justification by faith alone, we now pick up here in chapter 5. And Paul seems to have a shift in his emphasis in chapter 5 where he's going to start to describe this justification by faith in both present experience as well as future hope. And really what these 11 verses are going to do to us, and I want us to do what they're going to do for us, and I want us to hear this right away this morning, is that these 11 verses are going to provide the context for the assurance of our salvation. So let's look at verse 1. It says, therefore, and that points us back, showing that what he's about to say is dependent on everything he's talked about before this, this justification by faith alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been Paul's theme through these first four chapters. The word therefore shows us that this is connected to what has come, be- come beforehand. And now he transitions in, in chapter 5 here where he's not continuing to build on this relationship between faith and justification, but he's actually going to start to build on this theme of assurance. Because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Douglas Moo says this. He says, The verdict of justification, which Jews relegated to the day of judgment, has, Paul proclaims, already been rendered over the person who believes in Jesus. But can that verdict, hidden to the senses, guarantee that one will be delivered from God's wrath when it is poured out in judgment? Yes, Paul affirms. Nothing can stand in its way. Not death, not sin, not the law. Nothing. So this verse really gives us the assurance that because of, because of this justification by faith in Jesus, we have this peace with God. But then what does it really mean to be justified? Well, simply, it simply means to be declared innocent of, of things that we are really guilty of, right? This isn't, this isn't talking about false accusations of things we didn't do. But we are guilty. We are guilty before God. But through this justification, God acquits us and he declares us as innocent because what Jesus has done for us. Romans 3.23 again tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are guilty, but this justification declares us righteous. So then in Christ, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And notice, this is an indicative statement. We have peace with God. We live there. Notice Paul isn't saying, go and have peace with God, because that would be impossible for us. We know that the scripture tells us, in Romans 3.20, Paul tells us that for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. See, we have no capacity on our own to have peace with God. But this is done through the cross work of Jesus. And through faith, we receive this justification and we are made right with God. So why then really is this justification really necessary? Well, again, if we look back to Romans 1, and I mentioned it already, Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in chapter 5, verse verse 10, we see that we were once enemies with God. So why is this justification necessary? Because every one of us is born into this world by nature an enemy of God. And we are in this position of being under God's wrath. And it's necessary for us to be able to move from this position of being God's enemy over here into this position of being in God's grace and living in right relationship with him. So his justification is necessary for every one of us. And God has provided one way of obtaining this peace. 
and that is through Jesus Christ alone. Look at verse 2. Through him, speaking of Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, this access into this grace really doesn't seem to be so much a description of God's disposition towards us or the way he's treating us, but it really seems to be indicative of being brought from this place of wrath into this place of grace. Okay, we've been brought into this. And I'm going to read this verse again from the New Living Translation because I think it's helpful. It says it this way, Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of highest privilege where we now stand. And I think it's helpful because we see this picture that Christ is doing the work and He's bringing us from here to here. He's bringing us from this place of being God's enemy under wrath into this place of His grace where we are in right relationship with Him. And there's only one way that leads to that realm, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 4:16, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." And that's exclusive. Okay? You can't receive this position of grace, or you can't receive this, this position of, of highest privilege through Buddha. You can't receive this through Hinduism and In fact, you can't receive this through any belief system that does not embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Jesus is the only door, and it's exclusive. And so because of God's gift of grace, and because this is where He has brought us into this right relationship with Him, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the word rejoice here really carries with it this idea of confidence, right? Because... We're not confident about the things that we don't have. In fact, who goes to a job interview and then after that interview is over, rejoices over that job that they don't yet have? Nobody does that because that situation tends to bring some anxiety, right? You want this job. You don't know if you have it yet, but you have some anxiety as you wait to find out. The rejoicing comes when you receive that phone call and they say, hey, we want to offer you this job. It's yours. And you say, yes, I have it. This is something I now have. And it's at that time that we rejoice. We're rejoicing in this hope, and and hope really denotes something future. So this hope of the glory of God is this confident expectation and hope that we have in something that is coming. Something that we have already, but we haven't fully received it. It's the already not yet. It's there waiting for us. And in Matthew 5.12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, for, for your reward is great in heaven. That is future. We have not received this reward yet, right? But it's there. We can be sure of that. And we rejoice in that hope that that is coming. J. Harrison says, We confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. The Roman aristocrats strove for glory, but it was increasingly confined to the emperor in his household. Holding out hope that Christians would one day enjoy glory would have had a particular resonance in Rome. Because as these Roman, Roman believers saw this, this glory of the emperor's household, they knew that that was a glory they would never share in. But the reality for them was they, they, had, they had the hope of a glory that was so much greater than that. The hope of sharing in God's glory. And that is so much better than this temporal glory of the emperor. So there are some implications for this justification by faith alone. 
And we've seen three of those implications already. The first implication is that we have peace with God. The second implication of this justification is that we have access into the realm of God's grace. In other words, we have been accessed into right fellowship and right relationship with God. And then that third implication we've talked about is we have this hope of this future glory. But verse three, verses 3 and 4 are actually going to show us another implication that we might not expect. Another reality that comes from this, re, from this truth of this justification by faith that gives us hope. In verses 3 and 4, we see not only that, referring to those first three implications, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's really countercultural, isn't it? I mean, it's human nature for us to do everything that we can to avoid suffering, right? It hurts. We don't like it. And so we do everything that we can do to avoid it and keep suffering out of our lives. And we are very limited to do that. In fact, some religious systems embrace this idea of, of getting to a place of not having any more suffering. Consider Buddhism. Buddhism does not, they do not recognize any kind of supreme being or God, but what they do is, is focus on achieving this inner peace and wisdom, which they call the enlightenment. And when they, when they reach that point, as if they ever really do, when they reach that point, they call it a state of nirvana. And nirvana is described as this, a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self. And the subject is released from the effects of karma in the cycle of death and rebirth. It represents the final goal of Buddhism. So here the Buddhist is, is trying everything that they can to get to a point to the, where there's no suffering in their life. But one of the implications for us as justified believers in Jesus Christ is that we can actually rejoice in that which is difficult. And that's kind of a strange phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, the world doesn't understand this. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand this. And there's a transition that, that is happening here where Paul is focusing away from this future glory, this hope in this future glory, to um, focusing now on our present circumstances. Because our present circumstances do include suffering. E.H. Gifford says, No sooner has the apostle pointed to the glory of God as a as a light shining afar to cheer the believer on his course, then he thinks of the contrast between that bright distance and the darkness that lies around him here. And regarding Paul's teaching here, Douglas Moo says it is probably to head off criticism of his teaching that Paul introduces the problem of suffering. Because Paul's objectors certainly would have, in hearing Paul's message of this hope that we have, this hope of glory, and the greatness of our God, Paul's objectors certainly would have pointed to suffering in life, right? You talk about this hope that you have, but look at the suffering you're experiencing. I mean, Paul himself was imprisoned, illnesses, many things. And so Paul's objectors certainly would have brought these things up. And suffering really is a big problem, isn't it, for most of the world? In fact, suffering is one of the major things that causes people to assert that there is no God. Because if God existed, this suffering would not exist, right? It's kind of common sense. And I've talked to many people who have used that argument. They deny the existence of God because of suffering, because they can't reconcile it. What Paul here seems to be intent on doing is, is, is heading off the questions by answering. 
But he's answering of the Christian's response to this suffering. He doesn't clarify the problem with suffering, which would have been nice for us too, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Because there is a difficulty that we wrestle with suffering too in its purpose. But he doesn't clarify the problem of suffering, but what he does is address the Christian's response to suffering. We rejoice in it. Why? Why do we and why are we able to rejoice in this suffering? Because the character traits that it produces. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we find comfort in this hope, don't we? And therein we can rejoice because in, in some strange way we find comfort in this hope as we go through these trials. Concerning, concerning these three verses, James Boyce points out that the most important word in them is know. K-N-O-W. And Boyce writes that know is important because knowledge is the secret to everything else in this sentence. Christians rejoice in suffering because what they know about it. So it's important for us to understand this. Because if we don't know the end result of suffering, we're not going to see any reason to rejoice through it. But if we know what God is doing in the suffering, we might not understand everything, but if we know that through suffering, we know that that God is going to build godly character in us. And that we're going to learn to endure. And at the end of that, we'll actually find ourselves in a place of hope. If we know that to be true, we can rejoice in this suffering. And many of us here this morning probably have experienced that. Going through dark trials in our lives. where We have seen God sustain us and bring us through those difficult circumstances. And the context here of this verse is, is really probably not just to rejoice in the midst of the suffering, but to rejoice actually in the infliction itself. And that might sound odd, but Douglas Moo says to view them as a basis for further confidence in our redeemed status. But where we struggle is in the midst of suffering. It's very hard for us to see what good comes out of that, right? It's very hard for us to see in the midst of that how God is doing a work for His glory and for our good. Because it doesn't make sense to us. And again, this is a strange strange phenomenon to the world, but for the believer, these repeated conflicts and difficulties actually serve to grow us in character and confidence. But what about Things like illnesses that don't go away. What about suffering that we experience in this life that does not end in this life? That actually leads to the death of a loved one or you're facing death yourself. That difficulty that doesn't go away. What about that? We still have hope. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be informed. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So God is offering this hope that this life is not all there is. And this points us back to that future hope. Okay, we're talking about this present reality of suffering. But this future hope that we have, 
And so even in that, we don't fear death. And we don't make light of it either because it's not easy. And there is no claim that dealing with these kind of trials is easy. It's not, but we have hope in them. And we are offered hope. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. 1 Corinthians 15.19 tells us, if in, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the most... Um, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Because if we are going to subject ourselves to following Christ, suffering through these afflictions, and we are finding joy in a hope that doesn't really exist, then we should be pitied. <laughs> but we do have real hope. And our hope does not put us to shame. And that is why the psalmist was able to cry out in Psalm 119, 116, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. And why does this hope not put us to shame? Well, look at the rest of verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You see, Christians do not need to fear. We have hope. And we don't need to fear because our hope is built on an adequate solution. So what is that adequate solution? How, God has, how has God provided the solution for us? Well, look at verse 6. For while we were still weak. In other words, when, when you and I were still dead in our trespasses and sins, with absolutely no hope to save ourselves, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The finished work that Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead makes this eternal hope that we have possible. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that is our hope. And that is what God has accomplished for us in our weakness. And in verse 6 here, we, Paul really begins a section that really begins to show the the abundance of God's love and the insufficiency of man's love. And in verse 7, Paul's going to tell us that, you know, nobody's really going to die for a righteous person. But maybe, just maybe for a really, really, really good person, somebody might dare to die. Right? And we see some of those examples. We've all heard heroic war stories where a soldier has given his life to save somebody, even somebody he didn't know. So we do have examples that in rare circumstances this does happen. But how, many times, but how many times have you heard a story of somebody saying, yeah, I will go to the electric chair or I will go to the gas chamber 
for the likes of Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. We don't hear those stories. And why don't we hear those stories? It's because we look at the crimes that those people did and we say, no, they're deserving of that punishment. I'm not going to pay for that. They deserve that. But the reality is that we were just as guilty. We were just as defiled before God as those men. We may not have had the same crimes, but it doesn't make us any better in God's sight. And someone did die for us. Look at verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are guilty. We are guilty. And yet Christ stepped in and did that on our behalf. God's love really stands out even against the very best of human love. But notice that that God here shows His love through the sacrifice of Jesus. M.J. Gorman says, the interweaving of God's grace slash love and, and excuse me, initiative, a theological claim, and Christ's grace slash love, a self-gift, a Christological claim, is certainly one of the richest and most profound contributions of Paul to the Christian theology. Because, it is, because there is unity here between the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. And it is here that when a believer experiences in their heart the, emo- the emotional love of God based on the real event of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that we receive assurance that in our hope we will not be put to shame. And Paul's really going to explain to us in a very great way in these next two verses, why we will not be put to shame and the assurance and the confidence and the hope that we can have. Let's look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And notice in the first part of this verse, we have now been justified by... We, we have now been justified by His blood. This is past tense. This, this acquittal, this declaration of righteousness has happened. Let's jump forward to verse 10. Because verse 10 is really a parallel verse to verse 9, but yet there's a difference. Because while in verse 9, Paul uses this, this legal term of justification, this de- declaration of righteousness, Paul is actually going to use the term reconciled here now. For if... If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. In other words, now it's not just the declaration of righteousness, but we have been made in right relationship. And those go hand in hand because this reconciling results in that, right? Or this justification results in you're declared innocent and now you are in right relationship with God. That, that relationship has been made right. And in these two verses, Paul seems to be driving home the point that he began this passage with. Look back to verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified, there's that legal term. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And there's that language of restoration. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to pay particular attention here to how Paul ends these particular two verses. 
Because I believe what Paul does here offers us as God's people some of the greatest assurance that we have. In verse 9, because we have been justified, that has happened. Because we have been justified by His blood, he ends that verse with this. Much more shall we be saved by Him, that is by Jesus, from the wrath of God. In verse 10, since we have been reconciled to God, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. See, Paul is using an argument style here that was popular with the rabbis. And I can't pronounce the term that they would have used, so, but it really translates to, to being light and heavy. Or in kind of more of a uh, Western um, tradition, I guess we would say, from, from the minor to the major. And the way that rabbis would have argued is, if this minor thing has happened, then certainly this major thing. Or if this minor thing is true, then certainly this major thing is true as well. Well, Paul's actually going to use this argument style, but he's going to flip this around. And Paul's going to say, because this major thing has happened, because God has done the work of justification, because God has reconciled us, He has poured out His wrath upon Jesus. He has done this. And we are now justified. And we are now reconciled in our relationship with Him. And if He has done that heavy work, He has done that major thing, then how much confidence can we have that He will do the light work of seeing us through this life into eternity and escaping His eschatological wrath that is to come? Friends, we can... This should give us great joy and confidence this morning. God has accomplished this. He's done it. And if He has done it, He didn't didn't pour out His wrath on His Son for a maybe in the future. Okay, I poured out my wrath on my Son and maybe you're going to be saved. No. He did the heavy work to give us confidence and absolute assurance that because of that, we have this absolute assured hope that He will save us in the end. And that is good news, really good news for us. And this brings us into verse 11, where Paul appears to be bringing us full circle back to where he began in verses 1 and 2. We see back in verse 1 that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And verse 11 really seems to be a a parallel passage to that. Uh, But there is one difference, because now in verse 11... The rejoicing is not in this hope of the glory of God, but the rejoicing now is in God Himself. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question for us this morning is, have you been justified? Have you repented of your sin? And have you turned by faith alone and trusting in the sufficiency of the cross work of Jesus Christ? That what He accomplished on that cross was enough to forgive you of your sins. And that God raised Him from the dead to give us the hope of this eternal glory of sharing in God's glory. And if that's true of you this morning, then you have this hope. You have, you, you have this absolute assurance of salvation. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know what? As believers, we have no reason to fear death or judgment. We can have absolute confidence. 
And these 11 verses are really meant to provide for the believer the assurance of salvation. And the proof that is supported by a variety of arguments from this passage, James Boyce points out. And here's five. There's really six proofs. Proof number one, we can be assured of salvation because God has made peace with us through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Number two, we can be assured of salvation because through that same work of Christ, we have been brought into this new relationship with God in which we now stand. Number three, we can be assured of salvation because of the sure and certain hope that we will see God. Number four, we can be assured of salvation because of the way we are able to react to suffering in this life. We see God's purpose in them and therefore we rejoice in them, which unbelievers cannot do. Number five, we can be assured of salvation because God sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Not when we were saved people, as we are now, but when we were God's sworn enemies. And really, there's a sixth proof to add to this list. And that sixth proof is that reality that since God has done the heavy work of our justification, we have absolute assurance that He will see us through beyond His judgment and bring us into His glory. Let's pray.